Hi, my name is Joel Trono-Dirksen, intern at Canada's History. We spoke with Philippe Mayotte, the former director of the St. Boniface Museum, about the Red River Resistance. Mayotte wrote the article, The Priest Who Shaped a Province, in the October-November 2019 issue of Canada's History magazine. So one of the first things I wanted to ask is, so I read through the article and it talks a lot about, because he was a, like a religious scholar, I guess, or someone who led a religious community, Father Richard was basically a parish priest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, nothing particularly scholarly about him or what have you. He was just a fellow who entered the clergy a bit later in life than most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a maturity there. He had also worked as a farmer. He had taught at an agricultural college that they had out in Quebec before coming out here. So when he came here, you know, he had his missionary work as well, but he also spent a good time of his of his career working with Métis and other farmers to help them sort of progress and advance their methods of operation and that sort of thing. But as far as being any kind of a sort of a, you know, theologian or anything like this, that really wasn't his thing. Okay. For the most part, he was a parish priest. Yeah. Yeah, my question, I guess my question is, as reading this article, was there any kind of discussion of... Uh, I guess separation of church and state within like the Métis or French Canadian community in, at that time? No, I, I don't think so. Essentially what happened in, in the, um, the issues within French Canada of separation of church and state and, and so on, that started to come to the fore in the 18, you know, 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. But Generally speaking, uh, you know, especially in the, in the context of the Red River Settlement, the, in the Francophone community, the few people who had much of an education were the clergy. Uh, so their leadership was based you know, somewhat on, quote, their religious influence and so on. But in the case of Richard, I think it was more in a, in a matter of his education, his drive, and the fact that he cared for the people. Uh, the, the deal was in terms of, you know, in the article I talk about how he sort of helped to sort of validate Riel's, you know, movement, give him credibility and, and stuff like this. The idea is essentially what he was telling folks is that if we keep things reasonable, nonviolent and so on, then, you know, we're not going to get beyond, you know, break the bonds of the church or, or what have you. So, you know, people were saying, well, gee, you know, we're protesting against the Hudson's Bay Company or we're revolting against Canada or what have you. And he basically say, if our cause is just, we're good. So there was that aspect to it. But uh, no, where, where the issues came into play was on the, I guess you might call for lack of a better term, the Anglo-Protestant side yeah. of this, the so-called loyalists. Yeah. The people from, you know, from southern Ontario had come to the Red River Settlement um, that that sort of thing. You're reading the um, you know the letters that are going back and forth between people in Red River Settlement and William McDougall, uh, you know, on the on the border, and it's all like more or less. If it wasn't for the priests, you know, there wouldn't be any problems at all. The Métis are just you know following the leadership of the priests, and of course, in the Protestant context, this is all part of a papist plot, you know, to popish plot to you know to subvert the you know the will of Her Majesty and. Uh, and Protestantism and, and so on and so forth. So they tended to make it much more of a religious issue than on the Catholic side. In the Catholic side, it was, you know, the, the, the role of the church um, was legitimacy, 
the idea is, is okay. Well, if the church is okay with this, then, then we're okay with that. But in terms of leadership, most of the clergy in the Red River Settlement was essentially sort of like, well, we're here to support you and so on. Whereas in the case of Father Richard, he was indeed one of the political leaders of the movement. He was an actual member of the earlier Métis councils, having been elected by the residents of St. Norbert. It was only after the capture of Fort Garry when the Métis council was relocating to Fort Garry at the Forks that Richard basically stepped down as a member of the council and played a more informal role. He was also a big note keeper at the time. What kind of perceptions do we have of Riel and the resistance, the Red River resistance, outside of Manitoba? I know there's probably some listeners who maybe grew up in Ontario who have schooling from a little bit farther back who may remember Riel as a horrible rebel and a you know, tyrant it, it, and all those kinds it, of things. It's basically generational. You know, okay, so the quick story of Riel, he leads the Red River Resistance, which of course in the English system of education now is the Red River Rebellion. Mm -hmm. And in the second instance, there was the, you know, the Northwest, uh, you know, rebellion, which in a sense more approximated an actual rebellion. It was an armed resistance yeah. against Canadian authority. Riel was actually declaring that he was going to sort of separate the Métis from Canada and, and, and so on. But the idea also is that the, 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 the violence of that, there are arguments that he was pushed to that by the reaction of the Canadian government, which was completely to completely ignore the petitions and the requests that were being made by the Métis community in what is now Saskatchewan. So he's put on trial, he's found guilty, he's hanged as a traitor. So if you went to school in, I guess you might call an Anglo school system, whether it be the Maritimes, Western Canada, Ontario, the story of Louis Riel was this Métis uh, rebel who twice led the rebellions against the constituted authority of Her Majesty the Queen. Uh, he arranged for the murder of Thomas Scott uh, and that sort of thing. And he was hanged in 1885 for his crimes. If you were going to school in, in Quebec, uh, chances are that when you got to speaking of Riel, and again, uh, the Quebec education system doesn't spend a lot of time talking about stuff outside of the province and the actual history of Quebec. So if you're talking about Louis Riel in that system, you're essentially here was a Francophone Catholic who was foully hanged by the Orangemen and the Protestant, uh, the intolerant Protestants, who failed to, who had no desire to protect the rights and privileges of Franco-Catholics outside of the province of Quebec. So in one world, he was a martyr. In the other world, he was a justly hanged traitor. And in Manitoba, in my own educational experience, what I find is interesting was going to school in St. Norbert, where most of the kids were Francophone. Probably a significant number of them were Métis. And, but at that time, a lot of them didn't identify as Métis, and a lot of them maybe didn't even know they were Métis. This is a whole other story of uh, uh, sort of what's happened to the Métis culture prior to about you know, the last 20 or 30 years. But in any event, and our school teachers were Francophones or so on. But the textbooks, of course, were the Department of Education, province of Manitoba. So if they touched on Riel at all, it was basically the rebellion theory of things. But our teachers, on the one hand, as far as I can remember, they weren't particularly thrilled about teaching that part of it. 
But I'm sure if they were to teach the Riel was the hero, valiant defender of you know Roman you know Catholicism, French language rights, Métis rights, and all that, they probably would have got in trouble. So essentially, going to school in Saint Norbert, the heart of the Red River Resistance, the birthplace of the resistance, we learned literally nothing about it. I just remember a, a little sort of two-paragraph thing in a t Canadian history textbook which referred to that famous note sent to William McDougall at the border. It's sort of, you know, uh, the National Council of the Métis uh, order you not to enter the territory without our permission, dated St. Norbert, October 21st, 1869. So all of a sudden, I'm this, you know, I'm in grade 10 or 11, I'm looking at this, and sort of something significant happened in St. Norbert. Mm -hmm. But that was sort of the educational thing. By the time I got to university, talking about Riel, you were still at the hero or traitor thing. You know, like, here's some books that say he was a horrible traitor, here's some books that say he was a hero, read these books and draw your own conclusions. But what's happened, and I, this is just me, I, I haven't looked at this academically speaking, but with the repatriation of the Constitution in 1982, the Métis are recognized as a founding people along with the French, the English, and the indigenous, and the Inuit. So I, I could just see departments of education all over the country saying, okay, well, we've got our French section, we've got our British section, we've got our stuff on the First Nations. We got anything on the Métis? No. So all these departments of education have to start developing the Métis unit because they're now a founding people. So that leads to better education in the public school system. The universities were making advances as well. In Manitoba in 1970 was the first time, as far as I can tell, that the provincial government actually recognized the role of Louis Riel and the Métis as founders of the province. You have the repatriation of the Constitution. By the time you get to the late uh, 1980s, you have the Parliament in Ottawa and the legislatures in Manitoba and Saskatchewan passing resolutions in the House recognizing the importance of Louis Riel in the creation of Manitoba and, and so on. So all this sort of at that level has produced better education where you're not changing the history, you're just, you've just changed what's being taught. You've moved away from the propaganda aspects of it to more or less what actually happened. And when you study what actually happened, you can look at things like the execution as Thomas Scott in context, you understand that there were other people who were killed during the Red River resistance by the folks who were opposed to Riel. You don't hear about that. You, even now, I don't know if they talk about the reign of terror where for about a year and a half, two years after the arrival of the Wolseley expedition, the Ontario volunteers unleashed a reign of terror on the Franco-Métis population of, of uh, you know, Manitoba, complete with house burnings, beatings, killings and the rape of Métis girls and women. So once you put all this into context, you now have a fuller understanding of Riel and, and the role played. So again, in people's understanding, if you're looking at a newspaper article, say dealing with something that's happened recently with regards to the Riel or the Métis, the article will tend to be balanced, whether it's in the Winnipeg Free Press or the La Presse in Montreal or something like this. But if you go into the comments section of the 
you know, on, online. <laughs> you still get the, you know, well, you know, I was taught he was a murderer. I was taught this, I was taught that, and so on. So it's generational now rather than, I guess, ethnic the way it used to be. And this is just an aside, but do you, has, the, has the government ever rescinded their death penalty or, or apologized in any way? There's the que- Again, this is one of the big questions. You know, a pardon for Riel, and the other one is called an exoneration. Okay, so this is hotly disputed, in, uh, especially within the Métis community. The, the idea of a pardon is basically the government saying, yes, you did wrong, but we forgive you. Okay, an exoneration is basically, it's a legal thing. And the idea is, is that if there was a move to exonerate Riel, the federal government would probably appoint some retired judge to look at the court process. And the idea would be that if he found or she found that the court process was so biased against Riel getting a fair trial, then the verdict becomes waived and an exoneration takes place, basically saying, we can't tell you whether he's guilty or innocent because the trial was such a, you know, such, so cooked, mm-hmm. it was unfair. So I, I've sat in with one group of people and we've kind of tried to get the ball moving on an exoneration, but in other circles, the, the, the term is essentially let the stain remain. In other words, the Canadians did this to Louis Riel. They did this to the Métis. If they exonerate or if they pardon, they're kind of letting themselves off the hook. And it would be interesting to speak to people, say, within the Japanese or the Ukrainian community or the Italian community, where pardon or not pardons, but uh, apologies have been yeah. issued by the Canadian or government or indigenous yeah. communities and stuff like this. So it, 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 it's a political issue. But other than these uh, statements that were read in Parliament and in the legislatures and approved unanimously, they, 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 they have no sort of legal standing. It's just a statement by the government recognizing yeah. the significance and importance of real. But in terms of a legal pardon or a legal exoneration or anything like this, that hasn't happened. Okay. Just as a final uh, question, uh, so you were the director of the St. Boniface Museum. What do you guys have there in terms of artifacts of Louis Riel, or what are some of your favorite? The St. Boniface Museum, which is housed in the former convent of the Grey Nuns, basically was talking about Louis Riel and the Métis long before it was cool. You know, right from the, when they opened their doors in the 1967, and even in their prior uh, setups where they were located in the basement of the St. Boniface Cathedral or the old St. Boniface City Hall, the role of Louis Riel, the role of the Métis in the creation of Manitoba, and so on, was recognized, acknowledged, and essentially celebrated. In terms of the St. Boniface Museum today, there is not a museum in the country that can touch the St. Boniface Museum in terms of items related to Louis Riel. You will find his moccasins there. You will find his sash. You will find the white hood that they pulled over his face when he was executed. You'll find the first of the three coffins in which his body was placed prior to his internment. You'll find locks of his hair, bits of his suspender, a small statue that of uh, St. Joseph with no head, and there's about six different versions of the story of why this statue has no head, but the, the, the key there is that Riel had declared that St. Joseph was the, uh, the patron saint of the Métis. 
and plus we have the, the panels. I say we, I've been retired for five years, but that's the way it works. Uh, there are a number of panels that essentially attempt to tell the story of Louis Riel fairly succinctly. But we're talking about maybe 200 square feet, 250 square feet of space dedicated to Louis Riel and that, that part of it. And I have seen people spend two hours in that one section reading absolutely every caption, every looking at every artifact. I've seen people come out of there with tears in their eyes. It's just, it, it, it has that impact on a lot of people. So again, if someone is interested in Louis Riel, Winnipeg and St. Boniface, there's all sorts of sites to visit and so on, but the St. Boniface Museum is a real starting point. And of course, Riel is interred in the St. Boniface Cathedral Cemetery, which is about you know 200 meters from the museum itself. Yeah. That's all the questions I have. Okay. Thank you very much for coming in.